Welcome to the podcast today, everybody. My name is Brad Schmidt, and I get the privilege of overseeing all the faith and work initiatives we do here at NCF South Florida. Uh, Today, you're going to hear a talk I was able to deliver on the topic of faith and work integration. How do we connect Sunday to Monday? And in this talk, you'll hear about the grand story of the scriptures and how we're formed in our work by this very story. So with that, enjoy this uh, podcast and we'll stay connected to you. According to Gallup's recent State of the Global Workforce Survey done in 2017, more than two-thirds of workers surveyed in 2017 admitted they were not engaged at work. In the country I'm in right now, Barner Research shows 72% of Christians in the workforce compartmentalize their faith and their work. Now, this is a big problem because it means that the majority of people are not able to connect their work to anything bigger than themselves, like meaning or purpose. And for people of faith, it means the majority of people are not finding God in their work and don't think that their work is even of any interest to God. So what's at stake? Well, in a word, worship. St. Paul said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Consider this. You spend one third of your life working. You spend another third of your life sleeping, which means this. If someone can't integrate their faith and their work, it means they are not worshiping God for the majority of their waking lives. Why are we so prone to compartmentalization? Well, theologically speaking, compartmentalizers have what's been called a two-chapter gospel, fall and redemption, sin and salvation. In that view, what happens on Sunday at the church service is the big deal. Work is a means to an end. If work has any meaning at all, it's to help get people and invite people there on Sunday for the big deal. To form as integrators, the good news is we don't have to actually tap into anything new. We just have to tap into the ancient story, the grand story of the scriptures. There we find not a two-chapter gospel, but a four-chapter gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So let's see how work fits into the four chapters. First, creation. Now, creation gives us what we'll call the right view of work. Genesis chapter two, the story begins verses seven and 15. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Now this was written to Israelites. The Israelites had every reason not to embrace their work. They were enslaved by the Egyptians, given hard manual labor and told they were worthless. You can draw a line from there to the New Testament, and we find in the Greco-Roman culture a similar view of work, but with a twist. The Greeks were dualists. They thought that the mind was good and the body was bad. The spiritual realm was pleasing to God, but the physical realm was sinful and degrading. The ancient philosopher Cicero wrote, whoever gives his labor for money sells himself and puts himself in the rank of slaves. So St. Paul comes along in the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians 4 and writes, You should mind your own business and work with your hands so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Work with your hands. This was a revolutionary idea. Where did it come from? 
creation. Not only did God create matter and call it good, but God, the sacred one, the divine, was a manual laborer. In the exercise of creation, he gets his hands dirty from the dust of the ground, the text says. And then God says to humans, go and do likewise. So this tells you three very important things about your work. First, your work is good. Your work is not a means to an end. That's two-chapter gospel. Have you ever heard this line? If you were doing what you love, it wouldn't feel like work. Sounds good, right? Bad theology. Work is not a means to an end. If you're a Christian, using your work to share your faith is not what makes your work good. Your work is already good in and of itself. Because work was instituted before the fall, at creation, before there was ever a church, before there was ever a preacher, before there was ever anyone to share their faith with. And God said it was very good. Here's the modern view. You work to make enough money so you don't have to work. Here's the contemporary Christian view. You work to make enough money so you can give it to the causes you like. Here's the old-fashioned biblical doctrine of work. You work for the love of the work itself. Dorothy Sayers writes, Work should be thought of as a creative activity undertaken for the love of the work itself and that people made in God's image should make things as God makes them for the sake of doing well a thing that is well worth doing. Your work is good. Secondly, your work is sacred. Let's do a quick thought experiment. Think of what picture comes to mind when I say these words. Worship. Maybe it's hands raised during praise music. The second word is work. Maybe you think of someone typing in an office cubicle. The third word is service, like community service. Now, maybe you think of taking your Saturday with a group of people and volunteering to rehab a house for an underserved family. Now, in the modern world, we have a different word for each of those concepts. It's become common than to think of worship as something that you do on Sunday and your work is something that you do on Monday and service is something you do on Saturday with your spare time. But in the ancient Hebrew, there was one word to describe all of these things, and that word was avodah. It's used by God first in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to avodah it, work it, and take care of it. Draw a line from there to Exodus 8.1. This is what the Lord says, let my people go so they may avodah me, worship me. Then again, draw a line from there to Joshua 24.15. But as for me and my household, we will Avodah, the Lord. Serve the Lord. Work, worship, service, it's all one. The ancients knew the seamlessness. Your work is your worship. Your worship is your service. Your service to the world and to God is your work. Do you know what this means? Think of that feeling you get when you volunteer your time to rehab a house for that underserved family. It feels great. It feels like you've given back something that's been given to you. It feels like you're a part of something bigger than yourself. Do you know what avodah means? That's the same feeling held out for you on Monday morning when you go to work. 
I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, I'm thinking of leaving my job and going into the ministry. And I look at them like they have three heads. What in the world do you mean? <laughs> Avodah breaks down the walls between faith and work, the sacred and the secular. Listen to this passage from Dorothy Sayers. How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern for nine-tenths of his life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk on Saturdays and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his Christianity makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Sure, go to church by all means, but what use is all that if in the very center of his life and occupation he is insulting God with bad carpentry? The only Christian work is good work well done, as we are, so we make. It is the business of religion to make us Christian people, and then our work will naturally be turned to Christian ends because our work is the expression of ourselves. Your work is good. Your work is sacred, and your work is beneficial. See, the story of creation gives us a robust imagination for how to connect our work to the common good. The biblical metaphor for work is gardening. Think of what the gardener does. The gardener takes the raw materials of creation and develops it for the sake of others. In their book, Every Good Endeavor, Timothy Keller and Catherine Leary Alsdorf Use this definition of work, that work is taking the raw material of creation and developing it for the sake of others. Think of musicians. There's a piano right over here in my house, and my kids, when they play on it, they, they don't know how to play it, so they just bang on it, and they bang on notes, and of course the notes don't sound good because you, you can't just bang notes. You have to actually garden the notes, and that's what a musician does. The musician takes the raw material of sound and notes, and they garden them and reorganize them in such a way that it brings the meaning of art into our lives. Farmers take the raw material of soil and seed and bring food into our lives. The lawyer takes the raw material of research and facts and eyewitness testimonies and rearranges them in such a way that it provides justice for the client. You can't just have the facts or the testimonies, they have to be gardened. Storytellers take the raw material of human experience and reorder it in such a way that we can enjoy it and it brings meaning and fulfillment into our lives. I want you to imagine for a moment that everyone stopped working. Lester DeCoster, in his book, Work, The Meaning of Your Life, invites us to ask that very question. He writes, imagine that everyone quits working right now. What happens? Civilized life quickly melts away. Food vanishes from the shelves. Gas dries up at the pumps. Streets are no longer patrolled and fires burn themselves out. Communication and transportation services end. Utilities go dead. Those who survive at all are soon huddled around campfires, sleeping in caves, and clothed in raw animal hides. The difference between a wilderness and culture is simply work. What does creation teach you about your work? Your work is good. Your work is sacred. And your work is beneficial. So let's move now from chapter one, creation, to chapter two, the fall. 
Now, while creation gives us the right view of work, the fall gives us a realistic view of work. If the first chapter helps you be optimistic about your work, the second chapter will help you be realistic about it. We need to be realistic about our work. Creation is the beginning of the story, but then there's the fall. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And in Genesis chapter 3, we pick up the story. They ate it. Now it says they would die, but they didn't die instantly, so what's the deal? Death in the Bible, of course, is more than just physical death. It's the death or breakdown of absolutely everything in the world. It's the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy. Things start breaking down. And this is what happened to work. One of the effects of the fall in Genesis 3, it says that instead of producing fruit, we will sometimes produce thorns and thistles. Work now doesn't always feel great, always enjoyable, always fulfilling. You need to know this is part of your story, because if you don't, you will develop a romanticized view of work. The story of the fall makes us realistic. Sometimes you have to work in unideal situations. Sometimes you have to take a job for a season just to pay the bills. See how both creation and the fall work together? If you don't have the doctrine of creation, you fall into cynicism about your work. And if you don't have the doctrine of the fall, you fall into romanticism about your work. There's another part that disorders work besides circumstances. The other thing that ruins work is you and me. We bring our sin into the workplace. And one of the main ways that we do that is by making our work all about us. That is the reason work is so frustrating and so much of a toil in our culture is work is no longer what I do. It's who I am. It's no longer what I do to express the image of God, uh, to promote human flourishing. It's now who I am. It's my identity. The global superstar Madonna once said, my drive in life is from the horrible fear of being mediocre. I still have to prove I'm somebody. This struggle will never end. Does that resonate? Almost every voice around you is telling you to place your worth in your career. And what it does to us is it creates this inner restlessness. It's as if there's a work underneath our work. And it's this work of self-justification. We just have to prove ourselves. And that work makes us restless in our work, in our jobs. It makes us insecure. It makes us proud. It's while we'll sometimes step on other people to climb the ladder of success. It's why we're defensive and not teachable. It's why we can't embrace the original intention of our work as good, as sacred unto the Lord, as beneficial for others, because we make work all about benefiting me. So thankfully, our sin, the fall, it's not the end of the story. The third chapter in the story of work is redemption. And redemption gives us a restful view of work. And here's how. Adam and Eve were created on day six. They were given their calling. And then what did they do before they executed their calling? The very next day, they rested. The author of Hebrews says, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works. See, the rest that God offers us is of course found in the person of Jesus Christ. See, in the Bible, there are two gardens. 
the Garden of Eden, and the Garden of Gethsemane. And at the end of Jesus's life, before he goes to the cross to die for our sins, he goes to this garden, Gethsemane, and he embraced his calling there. He didn't abandon it. He gets down in the dirt and he toils in prayer. As he's toiling in prayer, the text says he sweats drops of blood. And in the garden, Jesus wasn't an idealist. He was utterly realistic. He cries out to his father, Lord, if you're willing, take this cup of judgment from me. And then he goes to the cross and accomplishes the greatest work for us. Our sin transferred to his account on the cross. His perfect record before the father is transferred to our account. This means we don't have to prove ourselves anymore. We don't have to justify ourselves anymore because he already has. His is the work underneath our work that leads to rest. See, there are two ways to work. There is a kind of restless work and there's a work that stems from rest. Now that would be good enough, but the story gets even better. There's a fourth chapter in the Bible, restoration. And this final chapter shapes our work deeply. It gives us an eternal view of our work. At the end of the Bible in Revelation 21, it reads this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The trajectory of Christian salvation, we learn in the Bible, is not the escape of this world, but the restoration of this world. It's not for us to see all new things in heaven. It's for us to see all things new on earth as it is in heaven. The great hope is not life after death, heaven, but rather life after life after death, the new heavens and the new earth, the consummation of God's kingdom. And where did it all start? At the resurrection of Jesus. Theologians describe the resurrection as God's future world invading the present. It's Jesus conquering death, opening up a world of new hope, new life, and new possibilities. And there are multiple places in the Bible that express the continuity between our lives now and that coming day. Multiple places that get across this idea that our lives, what we do, has cosmic and eternal significance. 2 Peter 3, it's talking about if God's going to renew and restore the world, how should we live? Live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of the Lord and hasten its coming. That's interesting. Draw a line from there back to Isaiah chapter 60, where there's a vision of the new heavens and the new earth, the last day, and you have to read it. It's a vision of the new Jerusalem as incorporating all of the cultural achievements of all the peoples of all the nations. That's interesting. St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ resurrected from the dead and is going to resurrect the world, do you know what that means? He says your labor in this world is not in vain. This is incredible. Listen to what Bishop N.T. Wright says. What you do in the Lord is not in vain. You are not 
oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness. Every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of His creation. Every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk. Every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings. All of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. And N.T. Wright has a great way for us to think about that. He actually makes this distinction. He reminds us that we're not the ones building the kingdom of God. Jesus does that. But we are building for it. And he says it's like the distinction between a stonemason and a master builder. Think of an incredible stone edifice like a magnificent cathedral. How did it get built? Well, you have stonemasons, and each stonemason did their part. They etched their individual stone. And N.T. Wright makes the point that stonemasons aren't building the cathedral, but they are building for it. Because then, at a certain point in time, the master builder comes. And the master builder collects all the individual stones, and he gardens them and reorganizes them, puts them all together in such a way that it all comes together in the end. And Wright makes the point that your life is that of a stonemason. God has given you a calling and a certain good work to do in this world. And when you do it, you're not building the kingdom of God, but you are building for it. For one day, at a certain appointed time, the master builder King Jesus will come back and he will collect everything we have etched. Everything that we've done inspired by the love of God, he will use it all to construct the new heavens and the new earth. And just like when the cathedral is finally built, a stonemason might walk by and say, wow, that's my stone. So too, you on that day, when the new heavens and the new earth are built, we'll be able to look at it and say, wow, there is my life, my calling, my work. That's what God did with all of it. Look how incredibly beautiful all of it turned out. This is our great hope. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. What an amazing story we find ourselves in. So. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening today to the podcast. We hope you got some valuable content there. If you are interested in integrating your faith at work, uh, we hope that you can join us. We have a growing community here at NCF and one of the top ways you can join us is through our LifeWork programs. You can check out lifeworksouthflorida.com for more information. And if you want to get connected to what we're doing in other ways at NCF, you can connect with us at ncfgiving.com forward slash South Florida.